for nearly two decades. The award-winning Your Financial Editor program on 930 WFMD. News from the worlds of business and finance with your financial editor, Chris Murray. Welcome to another edition of the Your Financial Editor program right here on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And as a podcast, uh, you can go to iTunes and listen to the Your Financial Editor program as a podcast. I am Chris Murray, your host. Thanks so much for being with us today. I appreciate it. I hope your day is going well. A really good program laid out for you today. I think you're going to enjoy it. We've got some uh, top stories, some economic data, including the jobs uh, numbers from yesterday. And uh, joining me in just a little bit, uh, and this is very timely, by the way. This is one of my top stories. Uh, Mr. Michael Ellis. Uh, Mr. Ellis was general counsel of the National Security Agency, NSA. Uh, he also served in different roles in the Trump administration, including as a deputy assistant to President Trump and senior director for intelligence programs at the National Security Council. So uh, he was really in the, the mix of things, if you will. He advised senior White House officials on some of the nation's most sensitive intelligence activities, including covert action, sensitive activities, counterterrorism, and cyber operations, as well as technical intelligence. Cyber is where we're going this morning. We've been dealing with this, uh, obviously, this week and then last month as well. Um, And um, I, I really believe that Mr. Ellis is going to be able to shed some light on what is happening with uh, all of these cyber attacks and the ransomware and uh, how it potentially can disrupt our country uh, as far as national defense and security issues go. Um, Also, our financial markets, our electricity, uh, grids uh, and supplies and things of that nature. So stay tuned. Mr. Ellis will be with us in just a little bit. And we'll kick it off with uh, that JBS, which is the world's largest meat producer, um, being hacked earlier this week. So JBS is uh, a major uh, supplier of uh, food here in the United States, top four uh it's a Brazilian-owned company, uh, but they had to shut down all of their uh, beef plants at the beginning of the week because they were responding to a cyber attack. So the shutdowns impacted all nine of those beef plants that they have here in Arizona, Texas, Nebraska, Colorado, Wisconsin, Utah, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, um, according to officials from the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union, which represents more than 25,000 JBS employees. So um, they shuttered plants that really produced nearly one quarter of the U.S. beef supplies. Um, And in total, JBS employs more than 66,000 workers across 84 U.S.-based locations. So uh, they discovered the company, discovered Sunday, that there was an organized cybersecurity attack. Uh, It had impacted some of its computer systems in North America and Australia. The company noted it would take time to resolve that cybersecurity breach, which it did, but not much. Uh, They did a pretty good job of getting things back online. Um, As far as ransoms paid, um, that's not a definite amount yet. Uh, but uh, again, just we just had the Colonial Pipeline issue uh, a month or so ago that impacted our energy 
uh, supply and security, especially here on the Northeast. And um, now, you know, you've got one of the largest uh, food producers in the world being hacked. Uh, Another Russian cyber attack. Uh, So that needs to be just thrown out there and and called what it is. It's from Russia. Uh, More proof of reliance on non-American food supplies. So you've heard me talk about JBS before when we talk about how um, these um, these various food suppliers take this meat packing, for example, JBS, they bring their food into the country wrapped up. Guess what they do? They unwrap it, rewrap it, and put a USDA sticker on it. So what we're trying to get done, people that care about these things uh, in Congress, is uh, have Congress really adhere to country of origin rules. So you're buying food that you think was uh, created, raised, and processed here in the United States of America, and that's not the case. So, again, we need to worry about our food supply chain and uh, who the players are. Uh, During COVID, when some food producers shut down, like JBS, uh, the workers may have went to other companies and other factories and spread the virus uh, to those workers there. Um, So it's just another example, again, of people not knowing uh, what they're really buying, who and what they're supporting. That's why I think it's such a great thing when people go to uh, local uh, meat markets and um, and and buy their uh, beef and poultry and um, uh, pork, whatever it might be, because you know that the animal was raised here. In most cases, if you're again going to like say a Mount Airy uh, locker, um, you know that the animals were raised locally and processed here. So you're uh, you know it's not some cattle yard again from a foreign country that's bringing you uh dinner or lunch so um but again the cyber attack stuff is extremely important uh that's what we're going to be talking about with mr ellis uh former um lead counsel chief counsel at the nsa national security agency he'll be joining me in just a little bit um also you know i'm gonna stick with russia for a minute because uh they're just as evil as china and iran Um, But on Thursday, Russia said that it would ditch all U.S. dollar assets in their national wealth fund. And they're going to increase holdings in euros, the Chinese yuan and gold. And this is, I think, purely a political move ahead of a uh, Russia-U.S. summit that's on the books for later this month. Uh, Russia has been gradually reducing their dollar holdings Um, since uh, we put sanctions on them after they uh, annexed Crimea uh, back in 2014. And they uh, really are trying to decouple from the Western financial system, if you will. And this purely sends a a signal ahead of this summit between Putin and Biden that's set for, I think it's June the 16th. So their finance minister in uh, Russia said that, uh, like their central bank has been doing, they've decided to reduce investments in the national wealth um, fund as well. So uh, after the changes 
that will be finalized within a month. The fund will hold about 40% of its assets in euros, 30% in yuan, and 20% in gold. And this is a massive fund because um, it, it accumulates Russia's oil revenue and was initially designed to support the pension system. And I looked, and back as of uh, the beginning of May, it had 185, just shy of $186 billion in it. And again, what they're doing is cutting ties with the U.S. dollar. Uh, this is and doing the cyber attacks and, you know, just smacking the current administration right in the face in many different ways. And all I heard so far was uh, uh, Biden's going to ask Putin about uh, uh, human rights issues. So I, I, when you look for leadership, there really is none, uh, no strong leadership at all. And talking about Russia, you know, what we saw this week also was OPEC, which they're not a member of, but it's kind of OPEC plus. And Russia is a massive uh, oil producer. But anyway, OPEC said that they were going to put their um, hike in oil output in place in July, just like they had alluded to. So they're going to produce about 841,000 barrels per day in July. And that follows some hikes that we saw in May and June. But again, when you look at the shutdown of the XL pipeline and other uh, uh, drilling uh, leases that were uh, rescinded this past week and whatnot, Energy is going to go up even more. And guess what? Um, We're going to be more dependent again on OPEC. And those great nations like Iran and Algeria and Congo and um, Iraq and Bahrain and Oman, you know, all those countries that just love us so much and just wrap their arms around the American flag. Yeah, we're going to be more dependent on those scumbags. Um, and the terrible things they do with that oil money as far as what they support. And here's something else that, you know, it's really important when you look at winners and losers. Uh, Right now we're a loser in energy because of what's going on with uh, forced uh, use of um, alternative energies like whatever, battery and solar and wind um, that's proven not to be up to snuff and much more expensive than traditional oil, uh, where we actually, and and natural gas, by the way, um, and liquid natural gas in particular, where, uh, you know, we're energy dependent and actually exporting, uh, which was great for that industry, but they want to untie that shoe. Um, But we also saw a couple weeks ago, and I don't think I shared this with with you last weekend, um, climate activists, they've scored some big wins uh, against these energy companies um, in court. And if you want to know who is extremely excited and cheerleading about that, well, it's Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi and Russia. So you had these defeats in the courtroom that have impacted Royal Dutch Shell, Exxon, Chevron. Uh, they're all under pressure to cut carbon emissions. And that's good news for the likes of Saudi Arabia's national oil company, Saudi Aramco, Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, and Russia's Gazprom and Rosnet. Yeah, they're the winners. We're the losers. Uh, It simply means more business for them and the Saudi-led Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC. 
So that's the stuff that's going on. And not only are they losing in uh, courts because of crazy activists and um, and people that have their own uh, personal agenda for for money and power, um, but also the board of directors. They're they're letting in some really really bad people um, that have again their own agendas. How they're getting in the boardroom, I it's it's amazing to me it sure shouldn't be the case and you have to look at that as an energy sector you know when you're an investor and where is this going how's it going to impact companies as far as uh their output their management their uh, stock growth their dividend payments all those types of things really come into play um one thing i saw this week that was good is um we're up to about 25 states now that are uh, planning to end this supplemental unemployment benefits, i.e. pay you to stay home and not work uh, program. And they're doing that uh, because they say it's going to help businesses that are really out there struggling to hire employees because they can't compete with uh, all that extra money. It's also interesting, those states, those 25 states, they're led by Republican governors. So uh, these governors saw this and realized that they needed to cut off this sweetened aid, which was given an extra 300 bucks uh, a week on top of regular state unemployment benefits. And, um, you know, you've got 8.2 million fewer jobs than there were uh, back in February 2020 before the virus came. Um, so, you know, you've got a, a, a lot of problems in that area, which, by the way, we'll get to the jobs report um, in just a little bit. Before we do, Art Laffer, who's a former economic advisor to President Ronald Reagan, said this week that he is not optimistic about the Biden long-term job situation. Mr. Laffer, very respected, had a lot of great things that he did in the Reagan administration. Um, if you remember that, uh, obviously, it was really good for the economy, for job growth, for uh, capital markets and entrepreneurs. And um, he's still very, very uh, involved. And he's also very um, he's listened to, you know, what he says has some impact, uh, to say the least. And he said he doesn't really have a lot of hope for the jobs market long term in the United States. Um, it's way below its potential, he said, of what uh, it would have been had it continued growing before the virus made its way here. Um, and we have a long way to go to catch back up. And he's just not sure. Again, you come back to leadership, that uh, the leadership and these um, stupid policies that are being uh, forced through, um, you know, that that's going to be good for the country and for the jobs market and the economy in particular. So um, definitely, uh, like I said, he's listened to, uh, respected, a lot of success uh, when it comes to economics. So uh, we'll keep a, an ear to the ground on um, other things that Mr. Laffer may say. Uh, the latest complimentary takeaway for you at murrayfinancialgroup.com, will your money last as long as you do? And that's uh, maybe one of the biggest questions you'll ever ask yourself. Uh, instead of going into retirement like so many people do, wondering, do I have enough or am I going to outlive my money um, or, you know, you fill in the blank. Uh, this really helps to bring clarity to that extremely important question. Will your money last 
as long as you do. Uh, just go to murrayfinancialgroup.com. It's right on the homepage. You click the button, and you get an instant uh, download to your email. When we come back, we'll talk about some um, economic data, including that jobs report. On the dashboard, little John Boy and Billy on the FM might win a hundred dollars if he's the fifth caller and names a bass player from Zeppelin. Yep, did spitting in a big. Got a shoebox full of money sitting at the top of my closet. From working like a dog, got a chicken scratch, no paddle. What I would have said once I bought it. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And as a podcast, just go to uh, the uh, iTunes and Android store and uh, you can download the the podcast. And um, also you can get the free app at the uh, App Store and Android store uh, for WFMD.com so you can listen to the programming whenever you want, literally at your fingertips on your smart device. Um, And uh, that goes for all of the programming on uh, WFMD. In just a couple minutes, going to be getting uh, to my guest, Mr. Michael Ellis. Uh, He was general counsel for the National Security Agency, NSA. Uh, Mr. Ellis also served in several different roles in the Trump administration, including uh, deputy assistant to President Trump, and Senior Director for Intelligence Programs at the National Security Council. Um, and he was involved in very sensitive intelligence activities, covert action, counterterrorism, cyber operations, which is what we're going to get his expertise on uh, in just a little bit. When we look at the economic data of this week, uh, U.S. manufacturing activity picked up in May. Uh, thank goodness, because states were allowing businesses to reopen, uh, reopen, which uh, most of them should have never closed. Uh, the ISM Institute for Supply Management said that their national factory activity index went from a reading of 60.7 in April to 61.2 in May. Uh, so, again, that was uh, very good to see. That was positive. People were happy about that. When you look at the service sector, which, by the way, uh, manufacturing's about 11.9 percent of our economy these days, where we are a service-based economy, uh, even though that uh, was really starting to change uh, prior to uh, the virus making its way here. Um, a lot of businesses and jobs coming back to America from uh, from overseas. Uh, I don't know how that's going to work going forward. It doesn't look good so far. A measure of U.S. services industry activity increased to a record high in May. So again, the Institute for Supply Management, their non-manufacturing activity index, which is the bulk of our economy these days, uh, went from 62.7 to 64 um, last month. So that was good to see. It was a little better than what economists were looking for. A lot of pent-up demand is uh, being unleashed uh, right now, and I'm sure you may have some yourself. Um, and then 
something else that I saw, you know, when we look at some important pieces uh, when it comes to the job market this week, uh, we saw a few different things. One, 385,000 people in America filed for first time unemployment benefits last week. 385,000, still way, way above pre-virus. And continuing claims, which means the people that continue to be on the dole for unemployment, that number actually rose to 3.771 million. That's more than what was expected, and it's more than you want to see. The ADP report, that's a private report, uh, a national employment report. They said private sector growth grew by um, 978,000, okay? All right, so that set us up for yesterday's big number from the Labor Department. Um, They were expecting 650,000 jobs to have been added last month. That didn't happen. 559,000, so that missed analyst estimates. You know what was even worse? I don't know if you remember this, but last year was, excuse me, last month when we got the jobs report, it was pathetic. Only uh, 266,000 jobs added. They they said there was going to be like a million. That number was only revised up by 12,000. So it was a real number. 278,000 jobs added in April. That is pathetic. Um, so, you know, again, it doesn't matter where you look. I don't think this is a very good report at all. Uh, okay, great. 559,000 jobs. But after, again, uh, shutting down the economy and putting all these people out of work and then continuing to make people, um, you know, social distance, wear the mask, can't open your store, certain capacity, uh, travel restrictions, you know, that's finally starting to be lifted again way too long after the fact. But, um, yeah, just a shame to see. That was not a good number. And uh, more we're learning about China and the virus. Um, And I've been hard on this, you know, the whole time, including with guests. Uh, You know, I said, how can we be compensated? How can we be paid back? And a lot of them are like, well, we can't do that. Well, I guess not if we were funding the Wuhan um, technology virus lab or whatever it's called. I mean, come on, man. This is just terrible. So um, we'll see. I don't, the the employment picture really hopefully is going to improve again. The main reason if it does is because of these uh, Republican governors who lead and don't follow and get rid of the extra money to pay people that are people are being paid. I should say, to stay home and not work. Doesn't make any sense. Uh, will your money last as long as you do in retirement? Mm. Why are retirement income analysis matters for your future? That's the uh, latest white paper that we have um, on the website. So go to murrayfinancialgroup.com. Click the button. It goes right to your um, email. On the other side of this, talking with my guest, Mr. Michael Ellis. He was general counsel of the National Security Agency, NSA. He was also a uh, deputy assistant to President Trump and senior director for intelligence programs at the National Security Council. One of his areas of expertise, cyber operations. Guess what? Russia's been hacking us, and we're going to talk about, uh, or we're going to get his take on what that means going forward. 
Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Tracy Lawrence. Some people pile in the church on Sunday to talk to the man upstairs. Some people drown in a fit the crown. The life seems a little more fair. Some people like to roll one up when their world starts rolling downhill. That ain't how I roll. Facebook will review its ban on former President Trump in six months. Let us know if Facebook should let Trump back on. Vote in Newsmax's poll. Text the word RESPOND to 39747. That's RESPOND to 39747. We'll share results on Newsmax with great recent guests like Donald Trump, Mike Huckabee, Franklin Graham, John Voigt, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, and more. Newsmax is on all major cable systems. Check your channel guide and vote on the Trump ban. Text RESPOND to 39747. That's 39747. Save up to 800 on major national brands at the Mattress Warehouse Memorial Day Sale, where you'll find savings store-wide. Mattress Warehouse offers free next-day delivery. Visit sleephappens.com for details and to find a location near you. It's your financial editor with Chris Murray on 930 WFMD. I'm just a good-time junkie, always leaving the things that love me. Wish I could make it last just a little bit longer, but I keep looking for something a little stronger. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD, WFMD.com, and also as a podcast. Uh, thanks so much for being with us today. I appreciate it as always. If you're a new listener, welcome. Um, or all the way uh, back to 1997 when we started the Your Financial Editor program. Um, and anybody in between, thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of uh, the program. And you are the success of the program over those 23 years and uh, the awards that have been um, gathered from that. Again, it's it's because of the listening audience. So thank you so much. Um, I had mentioned right before the break we were going to be jumping into a very, very timely discussion um, you know, a couple, well, I guess it's about a month ago or so, we had the Colonial Pipeline that was hacked, uh, wreaked havoc on especially uh, the uh, eastern seaboard where we had energy coming up from down south all the way up uh, into uh, New Jersey and New York. And, and, and then, of course, it was dispersed. That caused problems when the uh, hack uh, shut down the pipeline. Um, energy prices went up. It was just a mess. And then this week, we get JBS, one of the largest uh, food producers in the entire world, one of the top four in the United States of America. Um, it's a Brazilian-owned company, and they get hacked and uh, shut down operations here in America and also in Australia. So all this stuff is going on, and there's been bank hackings and hospital hackings, et cetera. It's just been a real mess the last handful of years in particular. Um, so very timely, my guest, Mr. Michael Ellis, um, he was a part of the Trump administration. He served different roles there, including uh, deputy assistant to President Trump and senior director for intelligence programs at the National Security Council. Um, he, you know, when he was at the White House, he advised senior White House officials on some of the nation's most sensitive intelligence activities, including covert action, sensitive activities, counterterrorism, cyber operations, and technical uh, intelligence. And he was also the general counsel of uh, uh, the National Security Agency, NSA. So um, Mr. Ellis has had a tremendous amount of exposure um, 
in this area of uh, cybercrime, if you will. And um, he graduated from Dart- Dartmouth College and also he's a graduate from Yale Law School. And he's a Jeopardy champion. I mean, you don't get a better resume than that right there. Um, so very well, uh, happy to welcome Mr. Ellis on to the program. Good morning, Mr. Ellis. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, as I was mentioning, we've had a ton of this um, cybercrime-type stories uh, that, is, that, that have been going around for uh, quite some time. But with Colonial and then also with JBS this week, I think it's really uh, front and center um, do you see any particular reason for the increase in activity, or is it just something that we're going to need to get used to? Well, these attacks have been going on for a while. I think what has changed recently is the size of the organization that some of these uh, ransomware attackers have been targeting. Uh, they had success with smaller organizations, with smaller ransom payouts, and they've been increasing the frequency and the scale of their attacks. Uh, based on their their prior successes. And these are generally criminal enterprises. Uh, They tend to be based in in Russia or in other former Soviet states. There's there's some in China and other countries as well, but most of the recent ones, both Colonial and JBS, I I think the FBI has attributed both of those to to Russian-based groups. And they've figured out a, a pretty efficient model to make money which is to exploit a security vulnerability at a target company. And as you mentioned, they were doing this with hospitals, law enforcement agencies. The the Washington, D.C. Police Department uh, was recently the victim of of one such attack. And uh, and now they've moved on to larger corporations, just looking really for for opportunities, for uh, for targets that where they can find a vulnerability, exploit it, uh, and then they take take hostage the target company's uh, systems. And, you know, exactly how they do that varies from case to case, but you know, there's a, a number of different avenues they can use to uh, um, to take over the system and move move within a network once, they, once they're inside and demand a ransom in order to, to decrypt the company's data and give them access to their networks again. Uh, you know, after they receive the, the payment, um, which typically is in cryptocurrency, they typically do unlock the systems. After all, very few companies would be willing to pay the ransom if they didn't think that they would actually get access back at the end. They would they would say, um, you know, no dice. We're not going to comply if if we don't actually believe that they're going to uh, be able to restore their operations. But um, you know, that's that's their uh, that that's been their 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 tactics, techniques, and procedures over the past several years and. They've been having a lot of success at it. Yeah, and it sounds like, again, because they've had success and there hasn't been, uh, it doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, repercussion for these uh, criminal organizations that they're just going to continue to do that, wouldn't you think? That's right. Uh, you know, so there are there are certain things that, that we can do, um, that, that companies can do to, to better defend themselves, you know, basic cybersecurity steps such as you know, two-factor authentication, for um, for login credentials, um, making it harder for attackers to move within networks once they're inside. But then, you know, as as you mentioned, there haven't been repercussions, and that's that's something that needs to change. Um, that we need to start imposing costs on countries that 
that harbor these groups. Uh, as I mentioned, Russia, first and foremost, uh, among them, because if there's no uh, if there's no penalty for engaging in these kinds of attacks, then um, then they'll, they'll just continue to do so if uh, if it keeps making the money. Yeah, exactly. And I saw, I think it was just this week that uh, at a press conference, when asked about this, uh, the uh, press secretary kind of said that this is a uh, a private company issue when it came to Colonial and JBS. Um, but th- I thought that was a very weak response because, as you said, I mean, we've had hacks over the years all up and down every type of private and government uh, entities. So I don't know why it wouldn't be taken more seriously. We've got a summit coming up on the 16th of this month where, you know, you could directly ask Putin why this is being allowed because you are I know he knows it's what's going on in his country. There's nothing that I don't think that happens there that he doesn't know about. So why this is uh, being tolerated without any type of pushback is uh, it's very disappointing. It's not surprising anymore, but, you know, it's very disappointing. That's right. And uh, while it's unclear exactly what degree of control the Russian government has over these groups, it, it is pretty clear that they could do more and they could be more helpful uh, in stopping these kinds of attacks and working with our law enforcement agencies. One of the biggest problems that, uh, that U.S. law enforcement has when it attempts to, um, to prosecute uh, cyber criminals, including ransomware attackers, is that they remain outside of U.S. jurisdiction. The Department of Justice will unseal indictment and you know, name name and shame Russian or Chinese defendants, but at, then it's very easy for the the Russian cyber criminals to just stay out of the United States, and they, they know they'll never be arrested because the Russian government will never uh, will never cooperate with U.S. law enforcement and and help bring them to justice. Um, and you know, you mentioned the upcoming summit that President Biden and Putin will have in, in Geneva in a few weeks. I think there's a very real chance that this is something that the Russian government is uh, is using to these ransomware attacks, something that they're using to increase their negotiating leverage in advance of that summit. It makes sense for, from Putin's perspective. You know, they they apply a little a little more pain to us before before the summit, so that way um, it's something that uh, when when the wheeling and dealing starts, if they are are bargaining over other issues like arms control, like Ukraine. Like the middle, you know, in the Middle East with Syria, um, that it's an area where where Russia has has given itself a, an additional bargaining chip in advance of the summit. Yeah, and that's not the only chip. We were talking earlier in the program about uh, Russia just on Thursday of this week said they would ditch all U.S. dollar assets in their national wealth fund. Um, that national wealth fund, when I checked uh, back in May, was worth like over $180 billion, and they're going to spend those assets and, um, and and reallocate to the euro and to the yuan and to gold. So I, it sounds like they're walking in, you know, with guns on both hips as far as negotiating goes. And I just hope that, uh, you know, we have people that are going to push back um, and, and, and not get pushed around. Um, and I guess we'll have to wait and see how that all how that all plays out. Um, I'm going split- to. I certainly hope you're right. So far, President Biden has had a lot of tough talks with the Russians, but you know I haven't seen a lot of action yet. In fact, his actions have been exactly to the opposite of you know giving the Russians a, a renewal of the New START arms control treaty earlier this year without getting anything in exchange for it, uh, declining to uh, issue sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that will lure Russian um, 
Russian energy to, to Germany and other countries in Europe? Um, and is it going to be a huge boon for Russia? And Congress mandated sanctions, but uh, again, the Biden administration declined to um, declined to impose them. So, so so far, it's been a lot of rhetoric from the Biden administration about Russia, but um, but not a lot of action yet. And I certainly hope that they're considering some more aggressive options, um, particularly in the cyber domain uh, and in terms of cyber operations um, that they could carry out to att- again attempt to make Russia pay a price for, for this kind of activity. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and uh, again, we talked a couple weeks ago about the pipeline, you know, that's going to lay through the uh, Baltic Sea to uh, to Germany. I just, I don't know. We're shutting down stuff. And um, given other countries who are competitors and really not our friends, of a lot of opportunity and uh it, to me it's very disheartening we're going to squeeze a quick break in when we come back we'll continue our conversation with my guest this morning uh mr michael ellis um he was the uh former general counsel uh, of the national security agency nsa he was also um a uh, served in different roles uh for President Trump during his administration and um, has given us a lot of insight and information into these uh, cyber attacks and just cyber crime in general. When we come back, I'll tell you um, how to get his latest uh, uh, paper that he penned, um, Time for a National Cyber Incident Disclosure Requirement. So a lot of the stuff that we're talking about this morning is actually in writing for you, and you can go get a free copy of it and um, and read it and and become more uh, informed and aware of what's going on, you know what these companies are having to deal with, uh, et cetera, and uh, and who the uh, the bad people are behind the curtain. So stay tuned. Take me down where the beer is cold, the fish get fried and the fireflies glow. Roll me down. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And also as a podcast, just go to iTunes and um, and type in your financial editor and uh, the podcast will come up, uh, both this one and previous podcasts. So if you want to re-listen or uh, share it with somebody you think would benefit from it, um, that's a great way to do it. Um, just go and listen to the podcast. Uh, we're going to wrap up our conversation this morning with my guest, Mr. Michael Ellis. Uh, he was general counsel of the National Security Agency, NSA. He also served under President Trump uh, during his administration, uh, deputy assistant to President Trump, senior director for intelligence programs at the National Security Council as well. Um, he advised senior White House officials on some of the nation's most sensitive intelligence activities, including covert action, sensitive activities, counterterrorism, cyber operations, and technical intelligence. He, um, since 2007, also uh, served as an intelligence officer in the United States Navy Reserve. He graduated from Dartmouth and then uh, Yale Law School. And as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, he is a Jeopardy champion. So I have to ask you, uh, Mr. Ellis, how much did uh, did Yale uh, Law prepare you for Jeopardy? <laughs> Not a bit. Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny, Jeopardy, uh, most of the uh, uh, 
most of the correct answers, or I should say the response, correct responses, because they're in the form of a question. But most of them are really things that you, you learned in high school or probably should have learned in high school. Okay, that's interesting. Um, okay, so I told everybody before the break uh, we were going to let you know how to get the um, the latest uh, white paper that Mr. Ellis wrote. It's titled Time for a National Cyber Incident Disclosure Requirement. You can get it free. Just go to heritage.org. And uh, you can type in uh, just Michael Ellis, E-L-L-I-S, and all of his uh, work will come up there for you. And it's really a a great read. Um, I've enjoyed it. And it sheds a lot of light on the different um, uh, the different kind of risks that are out there and some of the uh, things that people can do. So that's how I want to end up, actually, if you don't mind, Mr. Ellis, is how engaged are companies and governments here in the United States getting involved, whether it's a federal government or a municipality, whether it's a small business, medium, large business, how proactive are businesses becoming now? Well, I think they're becoming more proactive. Every CEO, if they hadn't already... Uh, asked their, uh, their their general counsel and their their CIO or chief technology officer if they haven't already asked them what their plans are in the event of a ransomware attack and how they would uh, respond to it they should be they should be asking that question right now and developing those plans ensuring that they have backup systems that are up to date um, and that they are ready in case they are the victim of a similar attack um, but you know there's a lot more that needs to be done and one area in particular, uh, where more work remains is on information sharing. Cybersecurity is unique because the private sector is on the front lines um, for this national security threat. If there were you know, Russian bombers or missiles attacking U.S. factories, um, no one would say, well, the factory owners really ought to buy some air defense systems and, uh, and stop this threat. We'd expect the government to step in and, and defend these American companies. And you know, on the cybersecurity front, the companies are on the front line. They're the ones um, who are the victims of these attacks, and the government can and should do more to help them, uh, whether it's in the form of um, helping them you know, learn the best practices to update their defenses, as we talked about before, um, building deterrence by uh, imposing costs on our adversaries when they engage in this behavior, but also, again, on information sharing by um, providing technical information to companies about threats that um, that the government is seeing. And obviously, this needs to be done in a way that doesn't compromise intelligence sources and methods, but providing that technical information so companies can address the threats before, um, before it's too late and um, mitigate the possible uh, consequences of an attack. And I think also what, what I'm uh, fearful of is that because so many of these uh, ransom uh, – ransomware issues are successful and that it's so profitable. I mean, Colonial was over $4 million. I'm not sure. I haven't heard yet about JBS, anything concrete. But, I mean, I would think there's going to – that's going to – you know, that's kind of flies to the honey where more and more criminal – act, uh, uh, you know, people in, involved in criminal activities are going to say, hey, this is uh, – maybe we should branch out and get into this, and you're going to have even more attacks than what we've already seen. That's right, if, if it's not deterred. And, in fact, there's nothing actually that prohibits companies um, from making a ransom payment that is, an, you know, assuming the attackers aren't you know, subject to Treasury sanctions um, or, you know, 
some other uh, issue like that. You know, in general, it's not illegal for a company to make a, a ransomware payment um, to, in order to decrypt their systems. Obviously, you know, the government uh, instructs companies and says, please, please don't do this. We don't want to encourage attackers by giving them money. But, you know, it's easy to say that in, in the broad sense. It's harder if you're an individual company and you know you need to resume your operations. If you're if you're a Colonial Pipeline, you want to get the the gas flowing again to millions of Americans. You know, it's it's easy to um, to say you really shouldn't pay off that attacker, but in practice, that's frequently the uh, um, the fastest way to get back uh, operational for these companies. And you know, one thing I should also add is that we don't even really understand the full scope of this problem because. Companies have strong disincentives to report these kinds of attacks to the government, to the public. Um, no one likes to share bad news, especially when it might impact a company's stock price, when it might lead to angry customers or loss of business for the company. Uh, and that's one of the issues that, that I get at in the paper, that you know, right now there's really a, a mishmash of different regulatory approaches. And in classic Washington fashion, after the Colonial Pipeline um, hack, you have the the Transportation Security Administration, TSA, saying that they're going to issue directives to the pipeline sector to, to start re- reporting cyber breaches. Well, you know, TSA doesn't really have any cyber expertise, um, and this creates a, a confusing patchwork of regulations for, for companies. You can imagine a, a, a power plant operator might have a natural gas pipeline bringing uh, gas into the power plant. Well, they're now, they're now subject to Energy Department regulations on uh, reporting a cyber breach because they're in the energy sector and also uh, subject to the TSA uh, regulations with respect to the pipelines. Uh, we, we can do uh, better than this. And that's what I get in the paper, that Congress could enact a single requirement, get rid of these sector-specific regulatory requirements, and make it, um, make it easy for companies to comply with, give them the incentives to, uh, to report breaches to the government, so that way the technical information can be shared with other companies and potentially head off future attacks. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I really hope that uh, that your ideas and uh, that are in this paper, again, titled Time for a National Cyber Incident Disclosure Requirement, I hope it gets momentum and uh, really does get uh, that momentum, get traction and make a difference to the congressman um, and the folks that, you know, would actually put some changes in place because uh, all of your points are well taken. And I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to uh, to be with us again, folks. Our guest this morning, Mr. Michael Ellis, um, and uh, he's got a great uh, paper that he did titled Time for a National Cyber Incident Disclosure Requirement. Go to heritage.org and it's free and you can read and learn and get smart and really sound smart at uh, the party over the weekend. Michael, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking time. Thanks very much. Okay, have a great weekend. And uh, that does it for us. We're out of time. So, um, I, you know, if you are driving and you couldn't write down uh, heritage.org or Michael Ellis's name or whatever, just drop me an email. Um, this is it's a really good paper, very, very educational, well-written, um, easy read. You know, it's just common sense stuff. Uh, so I would encourage you to uh, to, to get a hold of that uh, free paper and enjoy it. Um, I'll talk with you on the Morning News Express with Bob Miller and Ryan Hedrick, 550, 650, uh, live weekday mornings. And then we'll be back here next uh, weekend um, to talk about 
I think what we're talking about next weekend is uh, the importance of capitalism and how capitalism doesn't hurt but actually helps those that are less fortunate and poor and and yanks people up out of poverty. So that should be a very good conversation as well. And uh, I hope you have a great rest of the uh, weekend. And this is Chris Murray wishing you and your family, oh, will your money last as long as you do? That's the uh, complimentary takeaway at murrayfinancialgroup.com. So get yourself that. That's a good read also. I think you'll benefit from that. That's why it's there. Uh, This is Chris Murray wishing you and your family financial success. editions of this program are available in the audio vault at wfmd.com news radio 930 wfmd frederick a connoisseur media radio station seven o'clock